I'm going to read from Romans chapter 6. Could it be any clearer? Our, our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ, a decisive end to that sin-miserable life, no longer at sin's every beck and call. What we believe is this. If we get included in Christ's sin-conquering death, we also get included in his life-saving resurrection. We know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a signal of the end of death as the end. Never again will death have the last word. When Jesus died, he took sin down with him, but alive he brings God down to us. From now on, think of it this way. Sin speaks a dead language that means nothing to you. God speaks your mother tongue and you have, and you hang on every word. You are dead to sin and alive to God. That's what Jesus did. That means you must not give sin a vote in the way you conduct your lives. Don't give it the time of day. Don't even run little errands that are connected with that old way of life. Throw yourselves wholeheartedly and full time. Remember, you've been raised from the dead into God's way of doing things. Sin can't tell you how to live. After all, you're not living under that old tyranny any longer. You're living in the freedom of God. God, I thank you again for the gift of Scripture, that you would speak to your people, that you would show yourself little pieces of your glory and your splendor and your grace and your holiness and your compassion and your justice and your love. I pray this morning that once again you would use your word to shape us to be your people. Help us to understand better who you are. Help us to understand better what that means for our lives right now, today, in the real world. We pray this asking for the power of your Holy Spirit and in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Uh, Louis Zamperini's story of survival is one of the most remarkable and incredible stories I have ever heard. It's told in Laura Hillenbrand's book, uh, Unbroken. It's a true story of this uh, man. If you haven't read that book yet, I highly recommend it to you. It's a little bit thick, but it's just really well written and just an, an amazing, amazing story of survival and resilience. Louis was a bombardier in the Pacific Theater of World War II, and on May 27, 1943, Louis' B-24 bomber crashed into the Pacific Ocean because of mechanical difficulties. And he and his pilot, Phil, managed to survive the crash, and they found a way to get on one of those tiny little life rafts that they had aboard their bomber, and they found a way to stay alive for 47 days, bobbing along, drifting along with meager provisions on this tiny little life raft scraping together whatever raw meat they could find from passing birds or fish, warding off attacks from sharks that thought they were going to be a pretty good meal, just floating along and surviving. It's an incredible story. 47 days, and finally, they reached land. They'd survived this incredible ordeal. But of course, when they reached land, the land that they reached was the Marshall Islands. And at that point in World War II, the Marshall Islands were still controlled by Japan, and so they were quickly captured by Japanese soldiers and put into a Japanese prisoner of war camp. So they had survived one 
ordeal only to be put into another ordeal. And for the next two years, Louis suffered under the most cruel conditions imaginable. These, these Japanese POW camps were notoriously terrible places. And, and Louis in particular was the target of the sadistic abuse of a guard named Mutsuhiro Watanabe. They nicknamed him the bird. And, and POW after POW from America told of the stories of how torturous this man treated them. Just miserable, miserable abuse and torment. But then the war was over. The Allies won, and at long last, after two long years in these miserable conditions, Louis had survived again. So he returns home to his home in California, a survivor, a great story. He had, he had survived 47 days on the open Pacific Ocean and two years of abuse in a POW camp, but now, at long last, he was safe at home. He was alive. He had survived. But his ordeal was not over. Louis was a mess when he got home. He had nightmares that tormented him night after night after night, and the only thing that was driving him to continue to live was the thought of getting revenge on his tormentor, this man, the bird. It was so bad that, that he'd have these, these terrible nightmares. He woke up one night strangling his wife because in his dream she was this guard, the bird. He turned to alcohol to try to ease the pain. He became an alcoholic. His, his marriage started to... I was on the verge of collapse. So he survived one hell only to be put into another hell. He needed another kind of rescue. Well, in 1949, Louis' wife Cynthia went to an evangelistic meeting to hear a young preacher from North Carolina named Billy Graham. It was his first big crusade in Los Angeles. And as she heard Billy Graham tell about the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, God moved in her heart. And so she invited Louis to come the next night, and he really didn't want to go, but he said, well, just to kind of shut her up, he'd go to the service. And he heard Billy Graham preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he left angry. How dare that guy say that I'm a sinner? He doesn't know what I've been through. But he still went the next day, because again, he wanted to kind of appease his wife a little bit. And then, as he heard Billy Graham proclaim the gospel again, it clicked God was the reason that he had survived 47 days on the Pacific Ocean. God was the reason he was able to survive two years of torment in this POW camp. And now God was going to rescue him again. Louis Zamperini gave his life to Christ, and God rescued him. He set him free from all of his torments. He decided then and there he was done drinking forever. His marriage started to find healing. The nightmares came to an end. And this driving force that, that led him to seek revenge against this tormentor, he was finally able to forgive. He was at peace at long last. Louis' story then is not just a story of survival, but it's a story of redemption. God saved his life. He rescued him. I love stories like this because they remind us that, that God is not done. I realized uh, some time ago that I used to look at the Bible differently than real life today. I used to think, well, God used to do some, some pretty incredible things in the past, but when I look around today, it seems pretty mundane. Things are pretty tame. And yet this is a story that reminds us that it's the same God, and that same God is alive and active today. He does incredible things to rescue people in our time and day. 
Jesus has the power to transform a person's life and to rescue them from the worst situations. Louis, uh, Jesus changed Louis Zamperini's life. It's a wonderful thing when God rescues people in the name of Jesus. And that's true when a person like Louis is set free from this torment and all these terrible things in his life. It's also true when someone is so transformed that they are willing to face terrible things and torment for the name of Jesus. We're going to hear another story of transformation this morning, and this one's a very different story. This one, too, starts with the threat of death, and this one, too, demonstrates God's power and his rescue, but the end of this one is very different than Louis' story. The story of transformation this morning is about, is about the Apostle Paul, and it's found in Acts chapter 21 and 22. I invite you to turn there if you uh, haven't already done that. And if you didn't bring a Bible, that's fine. We have Bibles in the Purax. If you don't know where Acts 21 is, that's fine too. It's found on 1,102 of the Pew Bible. So Acts chapter 21 and 22, page 1,102 of the Pew Bibles. Now, you might be listening to this and thinking, well, wait a second, I'm here, and it's Easter, and on Easter, we're supposed to talk about the resurrection of Jesus, and that's what we've been singing about, that's what we've been hearing about so far, so now, why are we talking about Paul, and why are we talking about the book of Acts? Well, this is, has everything to do with the resurrection of Jesus, as we're going to see. We're in Acts because this is the natural outworking of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So we're going to look at this in two parts. First, we're going to see what Paul went through, and then we're going to see what made it possible for him to do that and to survive. So we're going to see this in two parts, Acts chapter 21 and 22. So first, let's see what happened in Paul's life. What did he go through? And we're actually going to slide back a little bit into chapter 20 here. Uh, We didn't get a chance to look at it too much last week. We're not going to get a chance to look at it too much today. So go back and read Acts 20. There's some great stories in there. But this is the, the point that Luke is driving at here. Luke, the author of Acts, is trying to show us that Paul is now on his way to Jerusalem, to Acts 20.16. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. So he set his sights on going to Jerusalem. And he knows, because God has indicated to him, that there is trouble in store there for him. So he's telling the uh, elders of the church in Ephesus this. He says this in Acts 20, 22 to 24. Now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. So he's going to Jerusalem, and he knows that he's going there to face conflict. He he knows something bad is going to happen to him there. The Holy Spirit has told him every city he's going to, he faces prison, he faces hardship. So he's clear about what he's getting into here. That same theme continues as we start our text in chapter 21. After we had torn ourselves away from them, the elders of Ephesus, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. 
All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. So again, there's an indicator of what Paul's about to face, that the believers here in Tyre don't want him to go to Jerusalem because they're afraid that he's going to face trouble there, imprisonment, possibly even death. And the Spirit is indicating this to them, and they then don't want him to go to Jerusalem. He gets another warning, starting verse 7. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the house of Manassin, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. So Paul now has been warned three times that he's going to face trouble in Jerusalem. First, the Spirit spoke to him that we saw in verse 20. Then he spoke through the believers in Tyre that we saw at the beginning of chapter 21. And now this prophet Agabus comes and tells him that he's going to be put in prison. And this time that the prophet comes and does this symbolic action of taking Paul's belt off, binding his own hands and feet, and says, this is your future. And this kind of symbolic action is designed to get your attention. So, for example, if I brought a flag up here on stage and and lit it on fire and burned a flag in front of you, you would know that I had very strong feelings against whatever country or group was symbolized by that flag. It's a symbolic action that shows a lot of anger, a lot of hatred toward a group. And so this this enacted, symbolized prophecy is, is designed to get Paul's attention. If he hadn't taken it seriously before, well, now he takes it seriously because he sees now someone before him with tied up hands and feet saying, you will be bound just like this. And of course, the Christians there don't want that to happen, so they beg Paul not to continue to go to Jerusalem. But remember that God's Spirit is the reason that Paul is going there in the first place. He feels compelled to go to Jerusalem, even if it means he's going to be put in prison even if it means he's going to die there in Jerusalem. And so they realize that this is what God has called him to do. So they commend him to God. They say, the Lord's will be done. And so as we see him entering Jerusalem now, we take a deep breath and say, what's going to happen to this man? Is he, is he going to face what has been indicated that he's going to face? Verse 17. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. 
So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. So the church in Jerusalem, as Paul gets there, warns Paul that there are some people who have some bad feelings against him. And so they devise a plan to try to ease some of these tensions and, and kind of smooth things over in Jerusalem. So at, at first glance, we think, well, well, maybe this isn't going to be as bad as Paul and, and Agabus and the Christians at Tyre thought it was going to be, except that it's not going to work. Verse 27, when the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia, where Paul had just come from, saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another, and since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, Get rid of him! So what God had warned through his spirit has now happened. Paul is in chains in the custody of the Romans, which actually in this case has served to save his life because if the Jews had had their way, they would have finished this beating and left him dead right then and there. So as we look at what happens to Paul, it's this. He faces the threat of death. And for the rest of the book of Acts, he is going to be in prison and in chains from one trial to another. He's never going to have freedom again in the book of Acts. Paul faces death. Now, this gives us a little bit of a pause because we're happy to hear about stories like Louis Zamperini's where God rescues him from terrible things and gives him peace and freedom and joy, changes his life in a really positive way because that looks to us like rescue. But how many of us would sign up for what's happening to Paul? Like, I don't want to get beaten by an angry mob. I don't want to face the threat of death. It almost feels to us like kind of a kind of a bait and switch here. So Paul, Jesus comes into Paul's life. Paul turns to Jesus, and now all of a sudden Paul's facing death. I mean, how is that good news? A friend of mine had signed up for a, a program uh, before our freshman year of college called High Road. It was a program for incoming freshmen, and the uh, the brochures made it look like a, a great 
adventure that was the only way that you would want to start your freshman year of college. So it showed pictures of this beautiful uh, lodge in the north woods of Wisconsin and, and this big climbing tower they had and pictures of people cliff diving into the beautiful blue waters of Lake Superior. And so he's looking at this thinking, that looks amazing. I'm going to do that. But then he got there and they handed him this kind of Vietnam-era army surplus backpack and a little pup tent and some cooking supplies. He took away his watch, took away his phone and sent him on this miserable trudge through the bug-infested woods of Wisconsin with a group of whiny, ill-equipped freshmen. And they spent the whole time getting lost in one way and getting lost in another way, and, and they all lost about 10 pounds from the meager provisions, and they spent the whole time just trying not to kill one another. At least that's how he told it. But he was thinking the whole time, where's the stuff from the brochure? I mean, this isn't what I signed up for. This was supposed to be fun. Where, where's the cliff diving into Lake Superior? Where's the nice lodge that I can go into? This is not what I signed up for. We might be thinking the same thing about Paul. Jesus is supposed to rescue people. But here Paul is getting beaten and threatened with death because of Jesus. How is the gospel good news if it means that now your life is threatened? If this is what happens to Christians, why would anyone want to be a Christian? And so we have to discover why Paul is willing to face all this and what it is that sustains him through this. Verse 37, as the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. So Paul is going to get a chance to tell his story. And first he's going to start out by saying what his starting point was. And it's the same as their starting point. Chapter 22, verse 2. When they heard him speak, when they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. He's speaking in the right language, the, the, the language of the Jews. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city in Jerusalem. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. So what he's saying initially is, I'm just like you. I had the exact same feelings. I was thoroughly trained under Gamaliel, this famous teacher. I understood the law just like you understand the law. And I came to the same conclusion that this Jesus guy is dangerous and that the church has to be stopped. And he had dedicated his life to that. He was so zealous for the law, so zealous against the name of Jesus. He was just like them. But then something happened. Verse 6. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. 
Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, Luke, who wrote this book of Acts, is so concerned that we understand Paul's story of conversion. that He tells it three times in this book. Three times we hear what happened to Paul because he wants to know what made such a difference. How did someone who was so anti-Jesus that he was going around doing everything he could to destroy anything connected to the name of Jesus, how could someone who was that zealous against Jesus suddenly be willing to die for the name of Jesus? How does that kind of transformation happen? Well, Paul's story, his own testimony, gives the answer. It's because Paul has met the resurrected Jesus. That's what's made the difference for him. He met the risen Jesus. See, Paul had been working under the assumption that Jesus was just another one of these self-deluded pretenders. If Jesus really was who he said he was, son of God, then he wouldn't have been killed on a Roman cross. If he really was the Messiah, this king that God had sent to save his people, then he would have kicked the Romans out and not been killed by them. If Jesus really was Savior, well, then he would have been able to save himself. But Jesus died. And for whatever these followers of Jesus were saying about resurrection, Paul didn't believe any of that. It was just nonsense to him. Jesus died, he was buried, and that was the end of it. Except all of a sudden, Paul sees Jesus living And if Jesus is alive, it means that God raised him from death to life. And if God raised Jesus from death to life, then it means that Jesus really is who he said he is. He really is the Son of God. He's vindicated. He really is the Messiah. He really is Savior. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything for Paul. Because Jesus lives, Paul turns to Jesus and repents of his sin and finds forgiveness and deliverance. Because Jesus lives, Paul is going to spend the rest of his life telling people how great Jesus is. Because Jesus lives, Paul doesn't care what other people do to him because those who belong to Jesus will be raised from death to life just like Jesus was because they are united to him. Because Jesus lives, Paul is willing to face any disgrace, any threat, any violence, even his own death to uphold the name of Jesus. The resurrection has totally transformed Paul and his perspective on life. It's changed everything for him. Well, the crowd is not impressed. Verse 22, the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. 
He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? He asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. So Paul has told his story. He's still in chains. He's going to be in chains for the rest of the book. But now we know why that's okay with him. Why he's, he's fine to be imprisoned for the rest of his life for the name of Jesus. Why he's fine to be killed for the name of Jesus. Jesus uh, Paul is willing to face death or any kind of abuse because Jesus is alive and he's seen the risen Jesus. He's not going to stop talking about Jesus no matter what happens because Jesus has changed his life. And, and if something changes your life, if something makes a big difference, you talk about it. I mean, you, you've heard people do this, right? They, they want to tell you if something has had an impact on their life. I was talking to a, a man who owned a small organic farm, uh, this little tiny farm surrounded by all the suburbs in the Chicago area, and he told his story of transformation. He had often been sick. He had often had very little energy. He was overwhelmed. He just didn't feel good at all. And so someone started talking to him about fresh, organic, locally grown produce. And so he started dedicating his life to that. He started eating only fresh, organic, locally grown food. And, and he said it changed his life. He started getting more energy. He started losing weight. He felt better. He didn't get sick as often. It changed his life. And so he dedicated his life, the rest of his life, to fresh, local, organic food. Or maybe someone gets really big into exercise, and this is going to be their savior. And so they, they say, oh, I, I joined a CrossFit gym, and I'm, I'm getting in shape, I'm stronger, I'm faster, I feel better about myself. Or maybe you find a significant other. You say, well, you know, I met this girl, and she's wonderful. You become something of, of an evangelist for those things, right? You want to talk about the things that have made a difference in your life. You tell your story. But here's the problem. All of those stories can be taken away from you. You can eat only fresh, local, organic food every day for the rest of your life and still get cancer. You can work out with furious intensity at the CrossFit gym day after day after day and still have a heart attack. You can marry that girl and then start to get into arguments. What I want you to see is this. You need a better story. You need a story that's more resilient than that. You need good news that, that can withstand difficult things. Good news that's good even in the worst of circumstances. Good news that is so good, it's still good even if it leads to your death. That's what Paul found. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, his life is totally transformed. His perspective is different, and his life is changed. He's willing to face anything, including a prison, including death, for the name of Jesus. Because Jesus is alive. He's resurrected. And what we saw today was really just a small part of the suffering that, that Paul faced in his life. He gives a, a long catalog of it in the book of 2 Corinthians, in the 11th chapter. He says, I have worked much harder 
been imprisoned more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the pressures of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I don't feel it? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? There's a sense in which Paul's life is miserable. He's gone through a lot of terrible things. And this is what he says, Romans 8. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now think about that list that you just heard. Most of us have not been through that hard of a life. Many of us have been through hard things, but that's a lot of hard stuff in one person's life. And he can say, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Well, how on earth can he say that after his life? Well, it's because of the resurrection. He explicitly ties this to the hope of the resurrection in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, since we have the same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, resurrection, will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. Therefore, because of the resurrection and the hope of our resurrection, therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Here's my question to you. Can you really say that? Can you say this with integrity? I don't consider my present suffering, I don't consider the the hard things in my life worth comparing to the glory to be revealed in the future. You can only say that if you know the power of the resurrection of Jesus. The past two weeks have been filled with a lot of hard things in the life of our church. And some of you know about some of those things, uh, and many of you know about many more than I do. You have these burdens in your heart, and, and I only know probably a, a fraction of the things that are going on in the life of the church. But, but just of the things that, that I have heard about in the last two weeks, there have just been tons and tons of really difficult things. It seems like we've had the whole range of stuff. We've had cancer and a heart attack and, and death and undiagnosed health issues and job loss and broken issues, which all this junk, all this really, really hard stuff. So I got the prayer list this week. It's longer than I ever remember from, from just this week. And I was just sitting there this week just, just overwhelmed by the, the weight of all these burdens. And then it hit me. If there ever was a time when we needed Easter, it's right now. Because Easter is the answer to this. The resurrection of, the Jesus, of Jesus means that there is a solution. The resurrection of Jesus is the answer to every sorrow of the human heart. 
the death and resurrection of Jesus mean that sin and Satan and death are defeated once and for all. So yes, we still live in a world that's marred by their shadow, but that shadow isn't ultimate anymore because we know that the God who raised Jesus from death to life will raise those who belong to him from death to life. No matter what happens to us then, Jesus rose in victory over the grave and those who belong to him will be raised to life along with him when he comes to set all things right. So Easter is so important for us right now, right in the hard stuff of your life because it's the seal that guarantees that all things will be set right. What you and I need more than anything else is Jesus. When you put your faith in Jesus, the same power that raised him from death to life is at work in your heart, transforming and changing you. And for some of us, that's going to look like Louis Zamperini's life, where God takes away the torment, he takes away the turmoil, takes away the pain, and gives peace and hope and joy in its place. And for others of us, it's going to look more like Paul, where we're going to face a lot more hard things. We might face persecution. We might face prison. We might even face death, the death of a martyr for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's the same power and it's the same outcome. Paul was just as filled with hope and joy and peace as Louis Zamperini was because God had changed his life. He had met the risen Jesus. In either case, it's the death and resurrection of Jesus that makes the difference for us. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, I want you to know this. Jesus is calling you to himself and he has the power to change your life forever. He's going to give you a better salvation story. Not organic food, not working out, not the gym, not some kind of significant other. He's giving you a rescue that can never be taken away from you no matter what. And if you're here and you're a Christian, this is a call to fix your eyes not on the junk that's right in front of your eyes, but on the glorious victory on the other side of that junk. Fix your eyes on the resurrection that we look forward to when every tear will be wiped away. Every sorrow will cease and death itself will just be a distant memory of the past because God is going to transform our weak, marred, imperfect human bodies into immortal bodies. We live forever in the presence of God with our resurrected bodies being able to look for eternity on the face of God and enjoy the perfect peace and the perfect provision and the perfect protection that's found where God is. So Easter is the great announcement of what Jesus had told his followers. He said in John 16, 33, in this world, you have troubles, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Easter is the seal that guarantees that, yes, Jesus has overcome the world. Here's the message. Because Jesus lives today, you and I can face anything that comes our way with hope and with joy. Jesus has paid our rescue on the cross, and Jesus has sealed our victory in the resurrection. Praise God. Would you please pray with me? We're going to borrow a prayer from Professor Walter Brueggemann this morning. Christ is risen. We give thanks for the gift of Easter that runs beyond our explanations, beyond our categories of reason, even more beyond the sinking sense of our own lives. We know about the powers of death, powers that persist among us, powers that drive us away from you, away from our neighbor, away from our best selves. 
We know about the powers of fear and greed and anxiety and brutality and certitude, powers before which we're helpless. And then you, you at dawn, unquenched, you in the darkness, you on Saturday, you who breaks the world to joy, yours is the kingdom, not the kingdom of death. Yours is the power, not the power of death. Yours is the glory, not the glory of death. Yours, you. And we give thanks for the newness beyond our achieving. In the name of our risen Savior, Jesus, amen.